0: Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I am here today solo talking to uh, author Nicholas Day. He is the author of Now That We're Alone, um, the other collection. What's the other collection? Nobody Gets Hurt and Other Lies. And the novella, At the End of the Day, I Burst into Flames. And the book that we're going to be talking about probably the most today, uh, Grind Your Bones to Dust, which is his, I believe, debut novel. Is that correct, Nick? Yes, it is. Excellent. Um, um And I was super, super glad to see it when uh, it dropped in my mailbox in spite of the treatment my mailman gave to it. Um, uh, <laughs> they're less than gentle up here.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's the same for about every... Post office across the United States.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, it was a unique experience for me. It was the first time I had had a manuscript printed off of probably a Word document sent to me that way. And it was kind of cool. But mostly what was kind of cool about it is I enjoyed the hell out of the book. And I'm glad we finally get to talk about it. Uh, First up, though... um, how about if you we give you the new kid first day at school question? Just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, well, let's see. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a writer. I sit around at a computer a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess. Um, let's see. I'm I'm about. I'm gonna be 40 in about uh, six months, seven months. And uh, I started writing when I was in my teens, but I didn't really, you know, I, it was just for fun. I, was, I didn't have a lot of money to do a lot of stuff, so it was either draw or make up stuff, write stories, junk like that. And uh, But I started taking it a bit seriously as I got into my 20s. And I did a lot of undergrad work in uh, creative writing at SIUE, uh, at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And then, um, and then I couldn't get anybody to touch anything I wrote with a 10 foot pole. Probably for good reason. It was probably terrible at the time. I haven't even thought about some of that stuff that I wrote that long ago because that's been almost 20 years now. And uh, so I did, you know, I did when anybody in their right mind would do, I thought, I'm going to move to Los Angeles and write screenplays.
0: <laughs> and oh, I did. insane. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. But it ended up actually working out for me. Um, I, met, oh, I met somebody working at CAA, like right off the bat, that liked what they read of mine. It was the first thing I'd ever written. And they invited me to uh, pitch some stuff. And I basically got an option off my first screenplay, and then uh, and then that kind of rolled into uh, working in film and TV to uh, various capacities. And then I, you know, I sold the second screenplay, and then Los Angeles, uh, the you know the union scene out there had two strikes back to back. And between that, it, both both projects just kind of died in the water after, oh gosh, about a year, about a year's worth of work. And then, uh, so that was a pretty significant bummer. So I thought, you know, I'm going to just take a step back from some of this and I'm going to work on short stories again. And that's kind of what got me back into doing more uh you know, traditional narrative stuff. But I worked for Samuel French, the play publisher. Uh, I worked, I worked in, uh, talent management out in LA for a while as well. Now, most of that stuff was for acting. Uh, but it, I, I did work with some screenwriters here and there. So I had a weird, it was a, it was a weird trajectory to come back to writing short stories and books.
0: <laughs> um, i'm kind of glad though i mean i'm not what a horrible fucking bummer it must have been for those two screenplays to drop after such sort of immediate success but in a way i'm kind of glad it bounced you in the direction it did
1: yeah well i mean that was fun uh it was an interesting learning experience i i also worked in film production and tv production for a while too and I mean, the thing I, l- I learned really quickly about film is if I if I do ever do anything like that again, I don't know. It, it would probably have to be a lot more on my own terms. Uh, it's a lot like writing for committee, which is not fun for me. I know some people are fine with it, but I, I didn't really enjoy that aspect of it very much. I liked the money, <laughs> um, but that was about. That was about it, but that's also never really why I got into writing exactly.
0: But then, money, you gotta, you gotta pay the bills. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, eventually, you, you know, you want to start making money off this stuff. There was a, I think my first two stories that saw print were. Uh, I mean, even though I'd made money off the screen, like writing's so weird because it's always like you're starting from scratch no matter what you've done. Like you finish a project and it's great and people like it. And then the very next project is just kind of like you're starting from square one again. And so even though I had had uh, quite a bit of luck in that regard with like the film and TV stuff, I mean, that didn't translate to luck with stories at all. Um, If anything, I I did work for a while at Universal, and uh, actually, I worked for two different management companies, not all at the same time. Um, I bounced from one management company to another, and then I took uh, some work at a production company on Universal's lot, and a lot of what I did was screenplay reading. Um, I did what's called screenplay coverage. I would create top sheets and things like this uh, for executive producers and producers. And I read, you know, by that time, I'd already, as far as like books go, I, I was always really well read, but I must have read piles and piles of every kind of screenplay imaginable. And it's so it's it was the it's the film industry's version of working the slush pile for a big magazine, essentially. And I don't. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just didn't say that's kind of a, kind of interesting. We'll learn a little bit about that process. Um, I had never really thought of there being a person who did that specific job. But it makes sense.
1: Yeah, I used to do it freelance quite a bit, Um I actually made more doing freelance for that than I than I did a lot of uh, freelance editing or anything like that for a long time. But uh, but it was you know you'll hear people say like if you want to really learn about the nuts and bolts of writing and what works in stories and what doesn't work in stories, take uh, take out some time to read slush for a while and you'll figure it out for yourself really quick what works for you and what doesn't. And that's true. That's that's really true. (laughs) Um, It's it's its own mini school.
0: Yeah, I can see how it would be. I I did a little bit of slush reading for an outlet that turned out not to be paying its authors. So I walked away from them, but I confess it uh, bored the hell out of me.
1: There are definitely days where, I mean, I would come home, I'd come home to my tiny little apartment, and I would just stare at my giant stack of screenplays and dread every moment of the weekend. (laughs) I bet. I mean, because I'd I'd probably leave the office with anywhere from five to 15 screenplays at a time. And uh, you just, you just power through that stuff. And, you know, like you read a lot of stuff that you're not going to like, just, just just like a reader, you know, a consumer is gonna go out and they're gonna dig through stuff and they're gonna find the stuff. A lot of stuff they don't really care for, but every once in a while you hit gold and it gets passed on up the line.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean it's brought you. Uh, I don't know. I was gonna say it's brought you this far, but I don't really know how far that is. Um, as far as as a writer goes, you've even from the first work i ever read by you until this most recent novel you've just grown by leaps and bounds with every single piece you put out well thank you you know so experience pays off and i i can see how you would benefit hugely from reading such a diverse array of material i imagine it was diverse anyway
1: oh yeah in everything under the sun <laughs>
0: Um, How do you think, uh, as far as being an author goes, I mean, it's kind of next to impossible to define Nicholas Day as an author, as far as if someone said, oh, what genre does he write in? You know, a lot of people say bizarro, but I don't get that from most of your work, really. Um, Fringe, right on the fringe. But if I were to ask you, define Nicholas Day as an author, what would you say?
1: Oh, well, boy, there's a question, right? Um, right. <laughs> I mean, I write, uh, it's funny, like my, I love uh, genre. I love horror, I love science fiction, but my reading and writing, a lot of, my. Like, Educational background is all like non-genre literature um, and classic lit, so it's definitely it's definitely this marriage of kind of I don't I don't know I guess you would call it uh, antiquated uh, <laughs> antiquated <laughs> antiquated lit with genre bend to it. I uh, mean most all of it most of the stuff that's been published as far as like the longer works go i think you could mump pretty easily into the transgressive movement uh, it all it all kind of goes that direction but i uh, i don't know i think the easiest thing would just be to say i'm a horror writer
0: I, yeah yeah and i can see that like you say if if i like what you said about being Uh, antiquated literary with a genre bent Um, and that's not I don't mean that in a bad way I think it describes your work pretty good though
1: yeah and as far as genre goes I just I mean I've done undergrad work in creative writing and I've done some graduate work in creative writing before I dropped out (laughs) but I uh, genre is just you know it's I mean, not I'm, I don't like to sound glib, but it's just a marketing term.
0: Really? And,
1: and I don't really th- I don't really think about genre a whole hell of a lot when I start writing stuff.
0: That's what I was going to ask. And that, I mean, you kind of just answered it is like, uh, do you go in looking to intentionally write genre fiction or does genre just happen? And I think the second is more true of you, probably based on what you just said.
1: Well, because I think what happens with me is – I mean, like, of course I've consumed so much of that stuff. It'll, it'll lean that way eventually, I think, just because of what I've read and what I've watched and things of that nature. But when I start writing, I, I can't tell you how many pieces start out as just, like, weird little dialogue exercises that come to me. It almost always starts with character, um, never genre.
0: It's interesting too. Um, it's like you, you uh, not only start out a lot of stuff that way, you manage to follow through and make stories out of it. Like I'm, like I've got pages and pages and pages by the probably hundreds of dialogue snippets and paragraphs and scenes, and I've never made a damn story out of a single one of those. <laughs> Well,
1: you know you just need to put together what do they call it? It's not flash fiction it's uh oh gosh, the term escapes me now, but just kind of little broken vignettes yeah um but yeah that's that's how a lot of it starts. I'll just think of I'll just suddenly start thinking of conversations between people and and then it usually it just starts to spider web from there.
0: Now, so do you take it from that point in time? Do you start when you latch on to an idea finally? Um, do you start with an outline or do you have a vague idea of where you're going? Or do you, do you just totally pants that from there?
1: Uh, it's a combination of... I, I edit as I go. I'm of the Joe Lansdale school of that.
0: Uh, and, yeah.
1: But I generally have... I generally have an idea of where I want to go with something. And it's just a matter of making that connective tissue from A to B. Um, I uh, grind your bones to dust. I I knew how it was going to end before I ever even started it. Um He probably probably the one that was the trickiest to pull off in that respect was uh, at the end of the day I burst into flames.
0: Yeah, where you basically start at the end.
1: Yeah, I start at the yeah. Well, I start at the end, then go somewhere towards the middle, and then go to the beginning, and then end up at the end again.
0: Um, And yet, oddly, based even based on what Nick just described, it works really well.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you know. I feel like uh, for the people that have picked that up and read it, everybody that has gotten back to me has had really strong reactions to it, probably almost more so than anything else I've ever written. But it it took, uh, that was a funny book. When it came out, I mean, it was Crickets. And it came out right before Christmas Eve, which that's, you know, Merry Christmas here is a really super depressing book. <laughs> uh, but it did it didn't really Did I just lose you? No, no. Can you hear me? Can you hear yeah, me? I can now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh I don't think that that book started to pick up with readers until the summer. Um and then all of a sudden it just seemed like a whole bunch of people at once discovered it. And I'm not really sure how that happened because <laughs> I don't think it was my fault by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it's, I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you what it was. Honestly, I think it was when it got nominated uh for the this is horror novella of the year award.
0: Um yeah, that was right about the time that I started. cuz it's like everybody I've ever said, "Hey, read this book," who actually went and did it has had the same response, that, you're saying it's it's been 100% universally was positive um but like you say it was about that time that I started hearing people talking about it more um for a like for the longest time I I felt like I was the only one talking about that book (laughs) meet you and me both uh
1: I uh I mean you know part of the problem was is I, that book was coming out and I knew I had the short story collection coming out soon after that. And then I had grind your bones to dust, which I, at the time when, when flames came out, I didn't know exactly when it was going to be out, but I knew it was going to be within the year. And, you know, I'm, I don't have representation or anything like that. I, I don't have like some huge budget for marketing. So, I knew of all that stuff. If, if anything needed the kick in the pants, it was going to be the novel. And so I really just didn't get to uh, market it quite as much as I would have liked. But you know, c'est la vie. That's that's the uh, double-edged sword of working in the indie market. Yeah. You you kind of you kind of are given free reign to uh, exercise you know, you're writing and go a little off the rails. But at the same time, you have a non-existent marketing budget.
0: And which, a, Yeah, and a non-existent marketing team because the indie publishers also have no budget for that.
1: Well, exactly. So I, uh, well, like with Grind Your Bones to Dust, I knew that that needed to be, that needed to be something that I had to get in front of people. And uh, so I started I, – I, I read a lot of uh, – oh, I don't want to get her name incorrect. I believe it's Jane Friedman. She talks a lot about publishing. She does occasionally talk a lot about indie publishing. And I've always enjoyed reading Jane Friedman. And she had mentioned in an article one time, and I don't even think it was necessarily about indie books, it was just books in general, that when you're planning any kind of marketing strategy, you really need to be thinking at a minimum six to nine months in advance, and if you can, an entire year. And I took that to heart with Grind Your Bones to Dust, and I started talking about that book weekly. Uh, Back in May of 2018, late May, probably. And as the book, you know, progressed, I talked about it more and more. And then as you know, I brought on Daniel Sarah to do art and share things here and there. And then once Succession Press was ready to go forward with uh, doing their pre-orders, I talked about that goddamn book every day. And it was all in service of marketing and trying to get it in front of people. But I will tell you that that book has already probably done better than the last, well, than the last two for sure. Probably the book that's done the, the best for me as far as sales since uh, now, now that we're alone. Back in 2017, I think that came out.
0: That makes me happy to hear that because it's a book that deserves a lot of attention. And it's, uh, I mean, that approach I think is a, is a superb approach. I think you couldn't get much better advice from somebody than, um, start pimping that thing as much as a year in advance as you can.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I know this, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast because I, I'm always of the opinion that I am the least interesting thing about my work, (laughs) but, um. (laughs) But if there, are, you know, if there are indie authors listening to this, you have to post about your work and you have to make people aware of it. And you can't just do one post a month or one post every six months or even two or three posts a month. You need to, you need to have at least one or two posts a week. Um, if you have a book that's going to come out and you want it to do anything at all, you, you have to do that
0: yeah, and looking at that from a reader-reviewer's point of view, um, I would add to that it's totally okay to do with that. It's totally okay with us for you to do that because we like to have that stuff kept in our face. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of indie authors, even really super experienced ones who say, well, I don't like to irritate people by spamming their feeds with my books and stuff. And it's like... See, that's
1: where I'm different because I don't mind irritating people at all <laughs> and if it means they're gonna remember the title of my book and maybe gasp even purchase it you know then then that makes the hours spent farting around on social media all the more worth it
0: yeah exactly otherwise it's, it is kind of uh, futile endeavor otherwise
1: well I I'm not a social media person. I mean, I get anxiety in crowds. I'm I, I wouldn't even probably be on social media if it weren't for the books. So for me, it's it's never been I've never felt like, "Oh, I'm annoying people. Well, this is what I do." I write. I publish. You know, I work in creative circles. And nobody's going to know what the hell I'm up to unless I'm telling people about it actively. And you know what? Honestly, like if there's people that get annoyed by it and they mute me or they block me, that's fine. Because the chances of them picking up a book by me anyway are probably pretty slim to none. Exactly. So I'm not I'm I've never really been too concerned with that. And I'll and I have I, I read that online. I'll see people say like, well, I don't really I don't do that kind of stuff uh, on social media. That's annoying. I don't make any money off of social media anyway. And I'm here to tell you that I make a lot of money off social media. <laughs> uh, but I also use it. You know, I use it as a marketing tool.
0: Well, and it should. That's what I confess I do, too. I probably wouldn't be there at all if it wasn't for the website and the podcast. But um, social media is the reason we have readers and listeners. So yeah. Yeah. So use it. It's a, it's a tool. It's your most important tool in this day and age.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, unless, unless I decide to sit down and write some 90,000 to 100,000 word book. And try to shop that around to representation, and get on at some big five publisher or the imprint of one of these conglomerates. You know, I social media marketing. That's it. That's what I've got. That's that is the uh, the marketing team is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
0: And what I've discovered. Um, over the last five years, since I started actually actively writing re- book reviews and writing about authors, is that um, word of mouth pays off better than just about any other kind of marketing you could possibly hope for.
1: Um, I'll tell you, yes, that that's true. And where I've seen that the most is, you know, what I do outside of writing, which is publishing and doing stuff with Rooster Republic and Strange House Books. Uh, word of mouth is the thing. And if you can... Because what it's a one-two punch. You have to be constantly hustling, as Gabino Iglesias would instruct you to do. Exactly. Uh, you always have to be hustling. The product of hustling is... Other people sharing your stuff, your art, whatever it may be over social media, because there's nothing that sells a reader more than another reader. I mean, I could sit online and talk about how great my books are all day till I'm blue in the face, I guess, but nobody's going to buy my my books if I'm just tooting my own horn all day long.
0: Uh, Yeah, but but at the same time, if you uh, convince five readers, those five readers, odds are, are gonna, you know, they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends, blah 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 blah, and there you go, books are selling.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of the stuff, a lot of the indie publishing stuff that I've done is, I've always tried to think of it as an exercise in audience building. Uh, Emma Johnson wrote a post years ago where she lamented, uh, you know, like, when are we going to stop selling our books to each other? And when are we going to start reaching new readers? And I really kind of, you know, that hit a chord, struck a chord with me as it were. Uh, and, and ever since then, that's more or less what I've been trying to do. Like with every release I've been trying to like make inroads by growing an audience, uh, getting into different reading groups. Uh, like you said earlier, you know, talking about genre, what genre do I see myself? It was kind of uh, it was a happy accident that Necrosource Rex got picked up and published at all. And it just happened to get published by Bizarro Pulp Press. And but like like you were saying, I a lot of my stuff isn't really what I would consider bizarro. A lot of it's horror or transgressive sci-fi. There's some crime in there, but because I because I ended up getting started in Bizarro, I found that I had to really uh, I had to really do some hustling to start making inroads with the horror community as far as getting readers.
0: Yeah, it's kind of you kind of get shoehorned, and then it you, then you're only appealing to just a certain type of reader for the most part. Sure. I mean, you have guys like me who read every single thing that comes under their nose. You know, I don't, I don't know what genre is. It doesn't mean anything to me. I read, I read fiction. You know.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I'm the same way. If it looks interesting, I'll pick it up and give it a whirl. Um, I'm not too, I'm not too beholden to genre, but there are people that are. There are, there are people. There, you know, even within. And I'm sure you've seen this even within something like the horror community. You have your little camps of folks that like certain types of horror and will swear up and down that certain types of horror are the real horror. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you, you kind of have to – it doesn't hurt to try to make a play uh, to those folks as well because you never know. Once in a while, you'll, you'll strike somebody's interest. They'll pick up your book. Uh, I know Sadie, Sadie had mentioned to me, and and this is kind of, I, maybe this is a strange thing for an author to say about their own material, but she had mentioned to me that if she had read Necrosaurus Rex first, that she may not have finished it and she may never have read anything else I ever wrote, but she read, uh, at the end of the day, I burst into flames first and she kind of worked her way backwards um, and then she loved Grind Your Bones to Dust, and Necrosaurus Rex ended up being the last thing that she picked up. <laughs> Maybe for, for, I don't know, some luck there, I suppose.
0: I Yeah, I haven't read that one yet either. That's something that I need to uh, unfuck here at some point in the near future.
1: It's uh, It's an acquired taste. <laughs> I always apologize to people when they tell me they bought it.
0: I'm, yeah, but at the same time, I'm, I think a lot of readers anymore, um, if they know that you're the real deal, that you've got that you've got the chops, they're going to be a lot more willing to um, throw their disbelief under a bus and listen oh, to what you have to say.
1: I mean I, I like Necrosource Rex, uh, and it's all it'll always be my baby because it was the first thing. but uh, it's definitely a raw, nasty, mean little book. Um but you know, so is grind your bones to dust
0: <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs>
1: and and both both of them have gotten really pretty good reviews uh I've been pretty happy with uh, how grind your bones to dust has been received and I was really surprised at the time how Necrosource Rex was received uh, I it had it had almost uh... I uh, very rarely did I ever get bad reviews for Necrosource wax
0: I haven't seen a lot of bad reviews for any of your work, really. Um, and I've seen nothing so far but raves for Grind Your Bones to Dust, well-deserved ones.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, it's probably because not enough people read me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we all kind of feel that way about our own stuff. though. <laughs> give it,
1: like, give oh, it. People start discovering me, and then I'll start racking up those one-star reviews.
0: <laughs> That's what I always tell. I always tell Rich, our, our, our podcast rating is really super good because we only have three solid listeners at any given time.
1: <laughs> I, um, I'm fine. I'm fine with being kind of a niche writer. I, I know that I am. Uh, I, I embrace that. I, I see a lot of people f- fret quite a bit about the work and whether or not like lots of people are responding to it. And I made peace a long time ago with the fact that I, I gravitate towards really super bizarre, super dark stuff. And that's just not everybody's cup of tea.
0: No, no, it's not. But, but when you, like you had said, when you get it in front of the right people, you talk about it enough and the right people stand up and pay attention. Um, I think the more people see Grind Your Bones to Dust, just the more rage you're going to get about that. I mean, there's always going to be that one-star monkey out there, you know, that doesn't like anything. Yep. But um, it's a a highly successful book on many levels. And when you talk about transgressive fiction, um, I've read everything except for Necrosaurus Rex. Um. Well, I believe most everything, anyway, and I, I think it's probably one of the most transgressive of your works.
1: Uh, but, yeah, I, I would certainly put it up there.
0: But it doesn't really doesn't really approach bizarro territory for me. It's bizarre as fuck, no question about it. Oh sure. Uh, but uh, I that's the one book you put out that I would 100% say if someone asked me this is a horror novel.
1: Yeah, it's it's very squarely horror.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um and I've already said this a thousand times. It's a, it's a hell of a horror novel. Um by the way, just before I forget, this has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but I'm thinking about titling this podcast episode Nikki's a lover, ma'am, not a fighter. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I read that line and it stuck with me (laughs) because it just it just made me kind of giggle a little bit, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: Well, you you know, I people there, there are there are two kinds of people, I think, that read some of this stuff. There's the people that there's the people that will read it and just be like, well, that's so fucked up. (laughs) Like, what's wrong with you? And then there's people that will read it and go, that's terribly dark and there's parts of it that are so funny and Uh, go ahead
0: sorry i was just gonna say I, i absolutely agree with you there are some parts in spite of the brutal darkness that are um just outright hilarious i um
1: i don't i don't know what that is i i've always enjoyed comedy and i've always enjoyed really really dark um comedy kind of like uh Atro- atrocity irony I guess I don't know what you would call it really
0: <laughs> yeah can I, can I mention where your where your book starts because I, I like the atrocity irony statement um, sure. applies applies so well to the beginning of your book when uh, you have this guy named Lewis running across the desert in the dark and uh, what he's happens to be running from are feral asses. Or yep. donkeys. <laughs> yes. Yep.
1: Well, I'll tell you. So a couple of years ago, my business partner and I and a friend of ours were driving cross-country. And part of the trip that we took was up through northern Nevada into uh, the very southern uh, – southeastern tip of Oregon. And that whole stretch out there is – It's nothing really but desert. Um, You know, people think of Oregon, they think of Portland, they think of the, the mountains, and they think of rain and the beach. But there's a good chunk of Oregon that's a bunch of desolate nothing.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of high desert here.
1: And when we were driving through a portion of it, there were, you know, you see signs for like different kinds of, especially if you're out in farmland, you'll see signs for cows grazing and stuff like that but there was a sign out there in the middle of this nothing where you could see for my god hundreds of miles in any direction and there was a sign for wild donkey and we're tired we've been driving for like 30 hours so we started talking about how awful it would be if you were attacked by wild donkeys out in the middle of the desert and eaten and then i think we jokingly uh called it carnivorous at the time (laughs) And it was just a joke between a bunch of just tired people in a car, and for whatever reason, it, the idea of it stuck in the back of my head. And my favorite kind of joke is uh, the joke that's just 100% committed, no matter how atrocious or weird the joke is. And that's kind of how I approached writing some of Grind Your Bones to Dust.
0: And it's interesting how how much, though, the joke, like a lot of people hear me say, uh, yeah, they were be, they were being attacked by a carnivorous group of carnivorous donkeys. And it will sound just completely absurd to them, but it ends up being horrifying.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was the trick. Uh and it was kind of fun for me because it was like, well, this is so absurd. How do I sell this within a narrative without it being humorous? And that took some work. Uh, I, you will notice that I, I rarely refer to them as donkeys. I rarely use the word donkey because simply using that word conjures up this goofball you know, animal that most people think of as being kind of a slow, dimwitted, benign farm animal.
0: Right. And, uh, in this case, they're anything, but
1: no, yeah. In this case, like, you know, they're, they're kind of right out of Clive Barker territory, <laughs> <laughs> um, just unholy mean, 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 mean animals.
0: Yeah, it's not a creature you would have ever thought would be a monster, but they are definitely uh, monstrous.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of, it's that one-two punch where you have to tap into fears that people recognize, but you also have to be able to take something semi-normal and turn it on its head. And, you know, people, donkeys are kind of by their nature kind of humorous creatures, but people are familiar of being afraid of animals. And so the, you know, the emotion you try to tap into isn't, isn't so much, you don't, I I wasn't really going for being explicit with the animals themselves, but the reaction from the the people to the animals. So like Uh. just, just starting it off the way that I did with the guy running through the desert, like it's no laughing matter right from the first sentence.
0: Exactly. It didn't like when you told me about the book before you sent it to me, and you said there's these. It's it starts with I believe your words were four carnivorous donkeys, and I just couldn't get that image out of my my mind the whole time I'm waiting for the book. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking that I've got basically a bizarro novel headed my way. And then I started reading those first pages, and it's like, holy fuck, Nick, what did you just do to me? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, well, like I said, it's, you know, it started as kind of this jokey thing for a long time. And then I thought, well, what if I just took this 100% seriously and expanded on it? And the donkeys themselves are a bit like, I mean, I guess if I had to compare it to something else, like book-wise, it's kind of like Dracula. They're in the first part of it, and then, you know, they're around, but you don't really see them again until almost the very end of the book. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, they're just they're just kind of a presence there, hanging out off kind of off stage there.
1: Well, and the idea was too was, I thought to myself. Because I knew I wanted to do some odd things with that book. I knew I wanted to do something that wasn't so much uh, indebted to genre fiction as it was to stuff like uh, Blood Meridian, you know, by Cormac McCarthy, uh, or Flannery O'Connor's kind of more violent uh, religious retribution stories. Or even even like stuff like Raymond Carver and some of his short stories, the way he handles dialogue between people. And it was a it was this weird synthesis of all those kind of ideas that came together.
0: Yeah, and I kinda think you kinda pulled out I don't know if you're saying that was intentional, but like my review, which is sitting up on my screen, I'm not gonna read any of it. Because you know it's me and I'm boring, but uh, <laughs> two two of the authors two of the authors you just mentioned um, are actually are actually mentioned in my review too, being Raymond Raymond Carver and Cormac McCarthy.
1: Yeah, I, I really gosh, and, and I'll tell you probably probably more Raymond Carver even than Cormac McCarthy. I I think a lot of people will make the, the McCarthy connection because. It's a pseudo-Western, and it's incredibly violent in in an almost biblical fashion. Well, I can't say almost. It is a biblical fashion. Um, But, uh, but boy, I I read through – I have a Library of America collection of Raymond Carver stuff, and I must have devoured that book. I must have read it and reread it while I was working on this book.
0: I'm a huge fan of Raymond Carver. I could have a lot to do with being a native Oregonian, but I think it's just because of, you know, he's Raymond Carver and he's brilliant, I think.
1: Oh, he's got some good stories. <laughs>
0: That's not- uh, mo- most definitely. Um, but you mentioned uh, biblical, and like you say, not just in a sense. Um, it, it does get downright biblical. Um, in fact, I've got, like, Five, six sticky notes sticking out the side of the book and each each one marks a highlight that uh, where um, God and heaven and hell and angels play heavily into the um, dialogue slash monologue that's going on um, so obviously there was some intent there on your part
1: yeah a little bit playing with mythology mostly uh I like weird fiction. I get tired of Lovecraftian mythos. Um, just like I get tired of people leaning too hard into Judeo-Christian mythos for stories. And so I very deliberately tried to write something that was anti-that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And especially when, when you pull um, James and Billing it into the into the story it really starts uh turning in that direction the
1: the first part of the book is like a trick to get folks that are maybe more in tune with regular straightforward genre narratives and then to trick them into keep reading my super fucked up book
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh I think it'll work i you know I can't speak for other readers, obviously, but it worked really really well for me
1: well even for even I think for people that have come to me that have had reservations about the book, they've still really enjoyed it, and they've been very uh generous w- with um, complimenting the writing, just the style in general I guess um which is always nice. Yeah. I, I w I won't lie. I worked really hard on the writing in this
0: book. <laughs> um yeah, and it shows. And God I just sorry, I do this a lot. Um I lose my train of thought. No, so Um God damn it, Shane. <laughs> oh, I was thinking you talked about um um people really, really digging the writing. And, I, and it, I started thinking at first, the very first thing that comes to mind for me that really makes this work on a, pardon the term, generic level is atmosphere.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you nail that. Um, you know, and it's kind of, you, you build this this dark, dismal, hor- horrific, uh, typical horror novel type atmosphere around Lewis in that first part um and like you say that sets you up so by the time you hit that second part you're primed for it
1: right right i you know purposely i mean i like i like regular genre fiction i i read pretty widely you know i've got I've got God knows how many books sitting around the house, and some of them are very straightforward, you know, linear narratives. But I definitely wanted to do something very specifically like pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, I didn't I just you know, if if somebody knows where the story's going. It gets boring to me, Uh Unless it's, unless it's handled, like, just expertly, you know? I mean, you look at something like The Exorcist, and you could, if you're looking at it objectively, you could pretty much say, okay, so this is a story about a little girl possessed. She's probably not going to be possessed by the end of the movie because this is a big-budget Hollywood film. But, you know, that movie is executed so well that for large portions of the film, especially when you're dealing with uh, Father, uh, is it Father Marin? Now I can't think of the name. Uh, the younger priest, you know, when when you start dealing with him, then suddenly you don't, you forget all about the trajectory of that story, of that narrative, and you don't know how it's going to end.
0: Right, uh, but go ahead. Oh no, I did, I just. Go ahead. <laughs> so,
1: but I just I I just wanted to very specifically write something where you may have this idea the first 10-15 pages into it where you think it's going and then very deliberately just kill whatever idea you had as far as the trajectory of the story. Yeah. Take, what take you think to a totally different new level.
0: Sorry, I, I just interrupted the hell out of you. But yeah, what what um, the book seems to be promising in that first act is far from what it delivers on in that final act. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> big there's surprises. Gonna, there's
1: there's going to be some people that will love it. And there's going to be some people that probably get pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you kind of have to shrug your shoulders uh, because there's there's people that like the surprise and then there's people that don't. And I'm, that's fine. I mean, I don't – it doesn't really affect me either which way. I, I think my big problem when it comes to like thinking about things like satisfying an audience is that I have always operated – you know, that I am, I am my audience. I am my first audience. And I have to be engaged with the work if I am to finish it. I have, if I'm not, I'll abandon it. I'll abandon, I've abandoned 60 to 100,000 words of material because I just sit back and think, this is not working for me. And I can't deal with that.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, it seems like cliché after a while to hear the old advice the old advice write the story that you want to read but it's a piece of advice from this guy who's never published anything well that, that i think is one of the most ap- important pieces of advice you could follow
1: Well, sure and i mean especially in this day and age when there's just a glut of material being published every day and if you're you know go big or go home because there's plenty of competition out there that's gonna play it safe
0: exactly
1: and and, i mean you can do that i guess which again it's fine it's just not my mo
0: no and nor should it be i think um You know, even even if you play it safe, you're not going to please everyone. And if you set if you set out to please everyone, then you set out to fail every time.
1: You'll please more people than me, and probably make more money. But my problem is, it just it the work begins to feel false to me, and my God, it just becomes hell to even bother
0: finishing something like that. I can imagine because it would start to feel dishonest to me.
1: Well, dishonest, and it feels by rote. Like, you know, there's there's no end to books out there. So if you aren't, you know, they, they say there's no new ideas under the sun, and that's true to an extent. But if you're really not trying to write something new and different, even with the materials that have been handed to you from generations of writers and creators... Then you're just doing yourself a disservice.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
1: No, I was gonna say. I, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather just swing for the fences and miss horribly and be memorable than write something, you know, write something note by note and be forgettable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, plenty of people out there doing that.
1: Because you're not gonna you're not gonna read grind your bones to dust and probably forget it anytime soon.
0: No, no, there's no there's no chance in hell that you're gonna read that book and forget it. I mean, even okay, if you were to take me as an example, I've got pretty severe ADHD and I do not remember things. I can watch a movie and then three weeks later, I can watch it like a brand new movie again. Right. Um. I don't remember now how many weeks out I am from reading "Grind Your Bones to Dust," but I can tell you every single minute detail about that story.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, and that's that's. I think with just about
1: any any of the longer works, like with short stories, i i put I put on my entertainer entertainer hat a little bit more, where I'm I'm just kind of playing with genre, and. I mean, even I mean, there's some short stories that are a little out there that I've written, but for the most part, they're kind of just twists and turns on what you would anticipate out of a horror short story collection, I think, at any rate. But the longer stuff, I definitely I'm, – I'm trying to write the best version of whatever that story is in, in a way that you won't forget it. <laughs> Even if it's just one little detail, maybe, but that you'll carry it around for you with a look for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you pull that off. I think you do a great deal. You pull it off with your short works, too. Um, Like you say, not so much, but they're still extremely memorable. And they're still when I think of collections that I return to again and again and again, um, yours are up there with some of some of my very favorites that way. So yeah, they're not necessarily forgettable either.
1: Well and I don't I don't I guess I don't mean that they're forgettable, but no. I think the sandbox that I'm playing in is a bit more even keel <laughs> than some of the longer work.
0: Gotcha, yeah, that makes sense. And and I would agree with that. Um I remembered what I was gonna talk about earlier. <laughs> Because I'm an idiot that way, um, and it was that I had wanted to talk somewhat ab- about place and about symbolism. Sure. Um, it, is it intentional on your part? Like a lot of the, a lot of the places in this thing um, seem to be symbolic of the people you set in them. Um, you know, like the mountain cathedral with James and Billings. And once we start learning more and more about James, we that analogy becomes more and more meaningful. Sure. Um, and then there are others, you know, I'm not going to give every single one away because that blows discovery, but uh, is it intentional on your part?
1: Very much so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... I, uh, I put quite a bit of thought into into stuff like that. I Sometimes I can get too caught up in that... But then again, like you know, I feel like uh, like with short stories, the same with longer works, everything ought to be wrapped up pretty tightly. Um. I mean, if, if you have if you have certain locations, think about why you have those locations. Think about what locations mean. You know, maybe, and not and not even like not even within the narrative, but to you personally. Um, I, you know, like when I talk about like kind of subverting myths or doing away with myths myth that I feel like gets used and abused by the writing community, um, there is a scene in that second part of that book where come, where James uh, comes across a grave digger. And the gravedigger's name is Howard Phillips. Yeah. And there's a piece of dialogue that they trade back and forth that is a direct allusion to Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And then at the end of that scene I kill that dude and bury him and I shove a shovel up his ass. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, so you could say that I mean it's all very it's all very deliberate, yeah.
0: So, yeah, in other words, uh, don't read this story to your kids, folks, but do read it. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it's it's definitely not for kids. I, hell, I, there's some adults I wouldn't recommend it to, really. Yeah. But I just, okay. I like wait with bated breath to hear what my, bless their hearts, what my parents <laughs> have to say about this. Uh
0: Do your parents read your
1: work? I know my father has. I don't know what my mom has read of mine. I don't even ask. I don't want (laughs) to know.
0: Sorry, it's always interesting to me. It's not not necessarily an important question, but I'm always curious about that. Most authors say no.
1: Well, I think I know my dad has. Uh, He... He, I know he re- he read Necrosource Rex, what he referred to as my violent porno. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's it's that thing where I bless their hearts, they want to be supportive, and I that's great. But my God, I write some really fucked up stuff.
0: <laughs> uh, delightfully fucked up stuff. though.
1: <laughs> um, I did dedicate I did dedicate my first collection to them um but necrosource rex you know necrosource rex's dedication actually says that the book is dedicated to no one because it's simply not that kind of book <laughs> um, and then even the dedication page and grind your bones to dust is pretty aggressive um, because it's just you know there's there's horror that is kind of like easily digestible and entertaining and kind of you read for fun and i don't think grind your bones to dust is necessarily that uh there's a there's a bit of i think intestinal fortitude one has to sit down and enjoy grind your bones to dust for any length of time
0: yeah i think in spite of the fact that i wouldn't really compare your voice to his i would say Type of intestinal fortitude you need is the type you need to enjoy a book like uh, McCarthy's Blood Meridian.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just oppressively violent sometimes.
0: Uh, Yeah, unless you're me and then you giggle at the violence. So yeah,
1: like seasoned seasoned horror readers will be will pick it up and I think would be fine. But I think if you were just picking it up out of curiosity and you're not you're not really like an invested horror reader it might be a little much
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I couldn't disagree with you there um,
1: But again again you know it's that it's it's that choice that every creative person has to make you're like you know you have to you have to know you have to know what it is you're writing, who you're writing it for and you have to be committed to that. If if you are, the work will probably be good. It will probably be received well by the people that would receive it. Um, Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for, I don't know, disappointment and mediocrity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and your work is transgressive enough that, yeah, if you're writing for a particular audience, you know who you're writing for, but you're also running a pretty severe risk of picking up some new some new readers along the way too because you're because of what we talked about before because you're not afraid to throw your throw caution to the wind with it
1: yeah might as well exactly
0: in the long sorry yeah exactly (laughs) yolo (laughs) um In the long run, though, with all of your long work, especially um, when I think I think of at the end of the day, I burst into flames. And then this book, what it really boils down to as far as the ultimate the ultimate ingredient that makes it work um, is. uh, Character. Yeah, you always have one or more characters that you make people carry care deeply about at least their fates. Maybe you don't like them or care about them. Um, As far as, you know, okay, I don't like you as a person, but I want to know what happens to your story. Um, And you do that, like, in the the case of this, you have what I think of as five key characters that I really cared about. Six, if you count, you know, there is a sixth, actually. But you had uh, Nick, Daniel, James, Billings, sorry, I'm slow with the memory thing. And uh, what's her name? Ruth.
1: Ruth, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, it's like you make people care about those characters. You make them care about what is going to happen at the end of that story arc.
1: Oh sure, because you, you know, you can. The whole, the whole book is leading up to that, those final pages. Like, I think you can – you might not know where the book is going, but if the book starts out the way it does, then wherever it ends must be something intense.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, anything that starts that way is going to have to really, really go somewhere in the last – Oh, yeah. It's like hopefully he didn't bury the lead right there in that first page.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. Like, you know, you – as much as I want to subvert expectations, you also want to give people a payoff that's worthy of all of the uh, rigmarole you've put them through to get there.
0: Yeah, and that one, I mean, I could, it's like, I could tell people part four is probably, a, you could correct me if I'm wrong, probably the shortest of the four parts in the book.
1: It, I think it, it's, not quite as long as part one.
0: Right, right. But it's uh, it's so wholly unexpected. It's like you go all the way through chapter three, you finish chapter three, some things get answered, there are some reveals there, and you totally just don't see what's coming when you hit that fourth part.
1: No, nope. No, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I would – if somebody came up to me and they were like, oh, I could see where this was – I could. I guess that ending from the beginning. I'd be like, really?
0: Uh, I doubt it. <laughs>
1: yeah, as I say, I don't know how you did, but let's go out and have some beers.
0: <laughs> exactly. I need to pick your brain. <laughs> yeah,
1: I need to talk to you and see how warped you are. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I. I mean, I'll. Uh, that well, and you know, by the time you get to the fourth part, even though it's shorter. Then the second and third parts, it's so informed by everything that goes on in those first three parts of that book that it feels bigger. It feels like a bigger story than the the length would entertain.
0: Yeah, it really feels like it was destined to happen right from what, you know, from... Uh, the very first chapter you feel like this is so hugely important based on everything that's gone before.
1: Yeah, Ruth Ruth is a bit like uh, if you ever saw Carol Reeds the third man, where she's this she is she is the character that is really in the entire book, but you don't really you don't really get her as a character, like a present character. Until the very end,
0: and then she ends up being kind of a linchpin,
1: yeah, yeah, well, she yeah, she ends up being the character,
0: <laughs> yeah <more. laughs> really, really, there is one other character, um that, and a lot of people won't think of this as character, people laugh at me when I say this, but the sixth character I was talking about is setting, oh sure. The place that you put your characters always feels as meaningful and as real as the characters that you put them in, Uh, you know. And I, I think with you that that feels. I would be confident saying that that's not something you're unaware of.
1: Yeah, I'm. I settings hugely important.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you do it so well with the atmosphere. You know, I've spent a lot of time down in Southern Oregon. Uh, and you're basically, once you hit that little town out there that you use in your book, um, that I probably pronounce wrong, Adele or whatever it's called, yes. <laughs> uh, you're basically halfway between hell and nowhere once you get there.
1: Oh, sure. Well, it's very much, uh, it's a very much like a reverse divine comedy in that way where yeah. you start off, you start off in Empyrean and you go to hell.
0: exactly you're going in the wrong direction but you're going
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well I've I've spent a lot you know I live a stone's throw from Adele and uh I live out in the in the high desert in southern Oregon and I've spent a lot of time out in the deserts in California and some in Nevada I, I really enjoy the deserts um and so I knew I wanted I knew I wanted to write something Set there but one of the interesting things about the desert uh or any kind of desolate stretch for that matter because for me to go anywhere i either have to go through desert or i go through mountain passes and do you know what's not in desert or mountain passes lights at night (laughs) yeah it's so dark it's like it's like looking through ink and you know i won't get into too much detail in it but a lot of that third part of that book is so informed by times that I have spent in those areas at night when you just cannot see anything around you
0: yeah and especially especially if it's overcast which I mean not that you portray that in the book but I mean like in the desert at night you can look up at the sky and see about 20 billion stars and a half inch of Space, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. unless, uh, the,
1: unless the clouds roll in and then you don't see shit. <laughs> and
0: then, yeah, and then you can't see your hand in front of your face.
1: <laughs> and it becomes really terrifying. Like that's a special kind of silence being out in the desert.
0: Uh, yeah, but it's one that I have always loved. I don't remember ever not feeling comfortable in that environment.
1: Well, and that's the thing. Like I do love it. I like going out there. Um, but it's also one of those things where it, it's such an easy atmosphere to give people unease. Yeah. Because people don't think about silence a lot, but everybody knows silence. And you know, when you talk about like setting, sound was also very important to me, I think, when I was writing large chunks of this book and the idea of the idea of silence being its own kind of creative energy
0: um yeah and, and a palpable one at that sure yeah. um and plus I think the desert was a really effective uh, a really effective locale for the mood you were conveying Um, And once again, it comes right back around to that symbolism we were talking about. Oh, Um, yeah.
1: well, it's also, you know, some of those bits of desert were really the last of the American West. That was it. And then once uh, once the Highway Act went into effect and they started. Cutting highways across because before that, you know, there were you were lucky if you had one lane little state highways running through a lot of that stuff, and so there were a lot of people that still had kind of traditional ranches, lot of lot of lot of ranchers on horseback. That's what was out there, really,
0: really for all the way between uh,
1: up, up to the uh, fifty, because it because that that part of the book is based in truth. Um, that stretch what is it 94 now i can't think of which highway it is now off the top of my head that goes from kind of uh the very southeastern edge of southern oregon and it cuts all the way across uh
0: i want to say 140
1: uh, yeah yeah i think that is what it is but yeah they didn't get around to uh they didn't get around to that until the late 50s here in oregon
0: and yeah, and before that, really, from Adele all the way to basically Steen's Mountain and beyond. Yeah, um, there's nothing out there.
1: Nope, it was all ranch, ranch, <laughs> ranchers, and nothing, and desert. That was it. Yeah, and even, and even the ranchers. I read a really great book actually when I was early days when I was uh, just first starting to make my notes and kind of plan it out because um, like I said I you know I have been out there but that's just been in the past five or six years but uh, I read a book called I want to say it's called the Oregon desert and it's uh, you could still pick it up it's one of those things that they sell at like Oregon museums and stuff like that you'll find it in there you can get it from the library but it's a pretty interesting account of that whole Oregon outback, more or less. Just all the farmers and the cowboys that, you know, tried to make use of that land and some of the people that stuck it out and some of the people that did not.
0: And, and um, yeah, I have to say hats off to the people who stuck it out out there. <laughs> yeah, bless their hearts. Well,
1: and I think, you know... <laughs> Well, hell, probably, I mean, Adele, you know, I'm sure a big part of the reason why that little town is still around is because of the highway.
0: I'm sure that's the only reason it is, because that's, I mean, not even a town, really. It's more of just an unincorporated community, I think. Yeah. So. So.
1: Little tiny, nothing of a place.
0: And sit like I say, sitting right there. If you step, if you take two steps beyond a dell to the east, you just step right off the edge of the world.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's, you know, what uh, John Ford made Monument Valley really famous for westerns, but there's stuff out in the southeast of Oregon that I think that could match some of the vistas found in any of those movies.
0: Yeah, and it hasn't been written about a whole hell of a lot. No, huh? Um, well. I
1: You know, even the idea of, I even link some historic stuff like the borax mining. There was a lot of actual borax mining that was done out there, and they had a lot of, you know, a lot of mule lines, stuff like that, you know, back before they had the railroads coming out there. So they were using, they were using beasts of burden to haul this stuff up.
0: I think we still have some borax mines down there in southern Oregon somewhere.
1: Oh yeah, just kinda of, kinda of north of the Winnemucca, I think. Of Nevada, rather. Ah uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. like all the way in the southeastern corner of that state.
0: Yeah. So okay, okay. I I knew I because I looked it up when I read about it because I was really interested I had not actually known that we had borax mines down there and I thought, Oh well I wonder if that's creative license, so I felt that's the type of idiot I am. I fell down a rabbit hole over Borax. Hey,
1: I'm I'm the guy that put it in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you try to do that stuff. Like, I do try to pay a little bit. I mean, as much as when I'm writing, I don't care about reality, if that makes sense. But you still have to try to pay lip service to the real world. It, it, yeah. You know, especially because in the end, it, it all just services empathy and it services character. And if you have people that know the area, you know, they're going to read something like that and go, oh, yeah, OK.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's why you, you have to sell that to all of your readers, including the people, because you're going to have especially people who know you're an Oregon author and who are fans are going to read that. And oh, a lot yeah. of the, a lot of them are gonna are gonna be like me, and they're gonna be people who have stood on some of the ground you're writing about.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely there's definitely some locations that they talk about, like kind of just some some of the mountain ranges and stuff like that. Like those are mountain ranges I've stood and stared at at sunset and sunrise. Yeah. Or- because Klamath, and, you know, Klamath is a real community. Um, Klamath gets a little name drop. That's Well, that's where the end of the book takes place. It takes takes place in a, a neighborhood in the northern part of the city.
0: Right, right. Um, and I still keep, every time you mention that ending of that book, I get a little shiver.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. It's um, pretty, the whole book is very kind of... Well, it has a sense of, of inevitability while also feeling very kind of elegiac, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and like, but at the same time, when I say I get a little chill, it's not necessarily um, at uh, anything that really super scared me so much as that it, it just worked so incredibly well. That uh, I would say to anybody listening, anybody who starts this book and doesn't stay till that final payoff is just totally going to be robbing themselves of a huge treat there.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I feel like you'd be missing out, not not only on what is probably, I I would say, a fairly good payoff to a book, but also, I, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to say that that's not some of. Maybe my finest writing in anything I've done is in the fourth part of that book.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, for see, for me, I don't have to worry about people worrying, questioning my arrogance or ego, so I can say that I think it is some of your finest writing, if not your finest writing. You know, and it, take,
1: it, take it from Shane, everybody, don't it, listen. To-
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I have, I have no investment in this. <laughs> um, what else was I gonna? I guess that I don't want to keep you all night long. I've already had you for an hour and a half here. Um, but uh, what do you have? Uh, what else do you have in the works now, beyond this?
1: Well, uh, grind your bones to dust was. So taxing to write uh, that I have I literally I have just kind of taken it easy uh, the last couple of months. I mean, one, the hustle for this book has been unreal, like just trying to push it as much as I have over the last two months or and change. But uh, I always have stuff going on. Um, I mean, especially like you know, not just on the writing front, but you know, with uh Don Noble and I with Rooster Republic, we're we're always working on stuff.
0: So and, I, and you have something going on with uh with uh journalstone right now too, don't you?
1: Um yeah, lightly. We we started looking at uh doing production work and, and helping with acquisitions for Bizarro Pulp Press. Um so we've been we've been fielding quite a few manuscripts for that. Uh, now that we're getting towards the end of the year, some stuff is starting to wind down. I'm editing a new book by Andrew James
0: Stone. I love uh, that guy.
1: Yeah, he just got nominated for a Wonderland for All Hell the House Gods, which we published. Wee. <laughs>
0: uh, you ju- you just got nominated for a Wonderland too, if I don't miss my guess.
1: Um, not. For for this Wonderland, but for the previous one. Okay, I yeah, was nominated for now that we're alone for the last collection.
0: Okay, okay, I knew that I had heard that you had been. I knew there was a This Is Horror and a Wonderland in there somewhere.
1: Yep, yep. We'll see. We'll see if anybody cares about Grind Your Bones to Dust enough to feed it an award.
0: God, I can't imagine not. But you know, I've I've been I've been wrong before, but
1: tastes you never know yeah Yeah. Um,
0: the the book the book works all the way from beginning to end no i think no matter what kind of a horror reader you are
1: i think so um i've had i've had people that don't even really read that type of stuff very often um have really good like positive reactions to the work in total yeah uh but yeah, I don't know. I'm, as far as personal work, though, I'm, I'm back and forth between whether I'm going to work on a longer piece again uh, or if I'm going to kind of kick back and try to work on another short story collection for a little while. And short stories are so great. They're such a great breather and such a chance to like experiment a little bit without, without the tremendous word count.
0: Yeah, I can see that, and plus you you have the extra little bit of, uh, if you're working on a, thinking toward a collection, you also have that extra little bit of creative uh, design going on in the background there of where is this story going to fit, and...
1: Right, right, yeah. you know, do you do you make it a thematic collection, or...
0: Right, right, or do <laughs> you just kind of loosely tie them together as you go through, or do you just completely throw that out the window?
1: Yeah, yeah, so... It's. I definitely have. I have a ton of notes for a short story collection that I've been kind of tinkering with for the last year, and then I have quite a few notes for uh, another full length book. It probably will end up being quite a bit longer than Grind Your Bones to Dust. Um, but, but right now. I'm just so happy that the book is out <laughs> and that it's been fairly well received so far, and it's sold quite a few copies. So I'm mostly just taking a breather. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever start. I don't even know if I will start really writing anything with kind of full commitment until after the year's over.
0: I don't blame you. That was a, that was a pretty huge endeavor, and it's your first novel, so that's got to be like a huge huge thing to check off your list as a writer it is um and you know i mean you always need to with a big project like that where you spend creativity spends a lot of friggin' energy a lot of, you you run off a lot of ro- protein uh writing a novel and then getting it out there and then you know like you say the hustle and everything so yeah i can see where it would be good for you to just decompress and
1: Yeah, well, and writing Grind Your Bones to Dust, you know, it's, I I always feel like I run the risk of sounding like some hoity-toity writer type, but that was a taxing book to write. (laughs) I was mentally wiped out by the time that book was done.
0: Uh, I can't imagine.
1: (laughs) It took me, it, it was like a month just to kind of recalibrate and come back to the real world after that was done. So I wasn't in any hurry to jump back into any kind of mindset, even remotely cl- close to that, for a while. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I can see how that would just be really, really taxing after a while. It doesn't sound hoity-toity at all.
1: A year's, a year's worth of inner, inner dialogue reminiscent of the characters and Grind Your Bones to Dust starts to, let's say, uh, wear on you a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. Well, um, do you have uh, anything else you want to tell us about before I let you escape my lame ass?
1: Oh, I don't think so. Uh, I, you know, the book is out through Accession Press. You can get it, you know, you can get it through your your regular sales channels, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I believe you can even uh, grab copies online via Target and Walmart and a handful of other handful of other outlets like that. Um, and then uh, otherwise, you know, there's always our, our books from Rooster Republic. We've got Not All Monsters coming out next year. Uh, that's edited by Sarah Tatlinger. We've got a debut uh, coming out from a writer named Christy Kulski Ingram called Fairest Flesh, which is very cool. Very good. Awesome.
0: Book.
1: Um, so, yeah, just... Spinning those wheels eternally—that's what it is.
0: Sarah Tantlinger is a hell of a talent too. So yes,
1: yes, yes she is. I, I would, I was, uh, I, I felt like we had something special when she turned that manuscript in. Like I just reading it, I was like, oh shit, this is really good.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I was like, we can't fuck this up, um, and we didn't. And she didn't, uh, you know, and and that book just really took off in a in a pretty big way for us last year, and, and of course she won the Stoker uh, for best poetry collection.
0: Yeah, it didn't do bad at all. And
1: I will tell you, uh, last week she and I signed contract for a new poetry collection that uh, tentatively. Uh, release in fall of next year it's another historical setting this time she's writing about the plague
0: ah interesting uh, yeah. she, she kind of reminds me of uh stephanie whitevich that way and that she t- she kind of writes to themes
1: yeah and i think for poetry that's uh i think it's kind of important to do that for poetry I think some of my some some of the longer collections that I've enjoyed in the past have all been more thematic, I guess you would say. Um, almost the last one that she did, the first one was very, I would say, thematic. The last one was like a narrative in, in poetry form. Um, it was very much like telling the story of H. H. Holmes. Uh,
0: I like those books like that. Um, I have not read that one yet. I will definitely unfuck that. But I've read a few by uh, Vincenzo Bilov or however you pronounce his last name, and um, somebody else through Bizarro Pulp Press. I don't remember now, I confess. But I really yeah. like those narratives.
1: Yeah, narrative poetry can be really fun.
0: Um, Well, then, I guess uh, I'll let you wind up. You can also, in addition to the places that Nick mentioned, you can also find Grind Your Bones to Dust on IndieBound if you're so inclined. Um, But uh, definitely, if you have not bought and read Grind Your Bones to Dust by Nicholas Day, you really, really, really need to unfuck that.
1: And I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) God, for the love of Christ, buy my book. (laughs)
0: All right, hey, man.
1: All right, man. Well, it was very good talking to you. It,
0: I, I really, really appreciate you coming and talking to me, and I hope to talk to you a lot more over the years.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I will let you get back to your life, and have a great night.
1: Thanks, Shane. Take care. Yeah.
0: Take it easy.